Well, if you will open your scriptures to Second Peter, we will continue on this morning in that study. Last week we began our new book study and uh, plowed right forward into it. Uh, didn't quite get very far, but we were in it at any rate. So we're in it. We're in Second Peter now. And uh, I'm going to read again the verses that we've already looked at and uh, read on through verse 4 of chapter 1, which are all tied together in a way in the introductory unfolding part of the book of Second Peter. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Let's pray together as we turn attention to these verses. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you're a God who has spoken. And once again, I thank you that in your mercy you not only have spoken, but you've superintended the writing down of what you've said and the accurate transmission of it so that now we can study it and read it. In the time that we have together, we pray that your Holy Spirit, who did that and oversaw that, will also carry out that illumining ministry that we need so that we would understand it in a way that we recognize the application of it to life. Work in us through our time. Give us alertness of mind, and we'll give you thanks as you do that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we got into, as I say, Second Peter uh, last time. Uh, in verse 1, as we got into it, we were discovering that God is reminding us at the very beginning of this epistle that all of the redeemed actually have equal standing equal standing before God. Isotemos in the Greek, which means equal in honor or privilege. Uh, the word iso shows up in many of our words today that gives you that sense of equality and, and clarity. Uh, the fact of the matter is, he starts the book out by reminding us that every person who is redeemed is actually on the same level before God as a product of that. Because every person who's redeemed is only redeemed and is only able to stand before God, not just at the start, but forever, based on the perfect life of the Lord Jesus Christ, which has been granted to us. That's what justification is all about. And while things can differ in our Christian lives in terms of our fruitfulness, in terms of our growth, in terms of the cooperation we have with God as his redeemed children to be becoming disciples and so forth, we can vary. And, of course, there's some accountability, not eternal accountability in the sense of sin, but accountability and answerability before God for what we do with our life. That's the judgment seat of Christ that's talked about in Second Corinthians 5. While there's differences there, there's no difference between believers on why you're saved or how you stay saved. It's always 
Jesus Christ and his perfect life. That's justification by faith. As Romans 5 put it, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so God starts out by reminding us of that truth. And he's, we're being reminded of that truth by one who, in many people's thinking, sadly, uh, in, in sort of this sordid thinking, assumed that they, this one was on a higher level than they would be. You know, that, that rather than everybody being on the same level, certain people are on a higher level before God. And Peter, uh, directed by the Holy Spirit, is writing this. But if you talk to him, I can guarantee you, if you'd have been alive then and talking to him, he said, there, there but for the grace of God go I. If we stand right before God, it's all because of Jesus, not because of anything that's going on in us. Uh, and God says, okay, let's start out the book reminding ourselves that we're on the same plane in terms of eternal life. The reason for it. The continuing rationale of it. But then he turns attention from that point, and in verse 2, then speaks to us about the fact that as redeemed believers, equal standing before God is a consequence of that. We can be very different in the degree to which we have knowledge of God, the way in which we know him. While that knowing is not the link of the reason why we stand right, it certainly is linked to whether we're growing and benefiting here and now from relationship with him. The word knowledge in verse 2 is the Greek word epinosis, which means it refers to an experiential type of knowledge, a relational type of knowledge. The distinction for us is a difference between knowing about, in terms of factual knowledge, and knowing in the sense of relational knowledge. You know, I, I know. Or it's not even just used in relationship knowledge between people. It can also be, for example, you could say, uh, we were talking about biking at the break here, uh, Ken and I, and you could say, well, I know this course. I know of the course. I could know facts about it. But if I say I've actually been on this particular course, I know, and I say I know that course, that means a different thing, doesn't it? That means I've actually been on it. Experientially, I've, I've, I've been on that hill. I've been on that tight turn. I, I know that course. And, the, and this Greek language distinguishes knowledge in that way, between knowing about factual things and experiential things, relational things. And this is the word that we're talking about. One of the wonders of having equal standing before God is that we now have the possibility of deepening an actual relationship with him. So when we talk about knowing Christ, having a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's legitimate if we understand that's what God is talking about. We can actually build experientially, relationally, a relationship with God. No one can build any relationship with God until they've been saved till they're covered by the perfect life of the Lord Jesus Christ, till they found that standing rooted in Christ. But once we have it, then we can get to know him. Or, sadly, we could not get to know him very well, because getting to know him is a choice we're making. Uh, the privilege can be given to us, but if we don't take advantage of that privilege and build it, uh, we won't actually have it. And I talked talk to you about the fact this word knowing, epinosis, and forms of that, are used 13 times in the three chapters of Second Peter. So it's clearly one of the thread themes throughout that, throughout that whole epistle. God is saying to us, and he's saying it in various ways, listen, 
Don't get in a cocky feeling that I'm standing right before God because of anything I'm doing. But at the same time, don't forget you were redeemed, covered by the perfect life of Christ, not just to save you, but so that you can get to know me. Then you could begin to grow in what that's all about. And if you lose track of those two pieces, you have a very distorted reality to your Christian life. When we're not growing in knowledge of him, uh, when we talk about knowing Christ, it's only empty religious words. So understand, sometimes the scripture uses that sort of phrase, knowing Christ, to refer to a saving decision. But very rarely. Knowing Christ is more often used, or knowing God is more often used, and is a description of a process. So we're not saved by a process, we're saved by repentance and faith in the gospel. But knowing is not so much talking about that. Do you see the difference? Anyway, that's what we were looking at last time. Now today, we want to move on and build on what we're looking at. So if we come to verse 3, and he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. It would make sense, wouldn't it, as verse 2 is laying down the groundwork that there's such a thing as growing in relationship that he then would talk about that more. He would say, okay, well, what's involved in growing in relationship? What, what is going to be the ingredients in this deepening personal relationship? And so he turns attention to it. And there are things that are going to link to life and holiness and surrender and so forth. And we're going to see more of those pieces. But he starts off with a core promise to us. He says, listen, everything that you need for life and godliness, I've given you. I'm not holding it off and maybe give it to you later. I've given you everything you need for that. Which, by the way, only makes it more self-condemning, doesn't it? That if we're not growing in relationship... You guys have already provided everything necessary to have that happen. Where's the responsibility then rest if we're not growing? Here. You know, that, not with God. It's not like, well, you didn't do enough, Lord. Uh, uh, no, no, he, he's done everything that's necessary to do for any of us to grow as disciples. When we're not growing, it's our problem. He says all things here translates the Greek word panta, which means something so complete without exceptions to it. It's really kind of an unbelievable promise if you really think about it. All things that I'm going to need for life and godliness, you've, you've given me? Do you really mean that? And God says, yeah, I mean it. I've not left anything out that you're needing for life and godliness. I've not left anything out. Well, what if I'm not growing in life and godliness? Well, the problem isn't mine is what God is saying. The problem is yours uh, because you're not appropriating. You're not doing what, what I've given to you. Uh, now, he's given us everything we need for life and godliness, but actually in the verses that go after, starting in verse 5, we discover that we're supposed to be adding things to it. That doesn't mean God hasn't provided everything we need for life and godliness, but what he's provided for us, we have to then act upon and do things with. For example, when I was doing some building many years ago uh, and kind of doing some remodeling work, I was involved in construction and doing some remodeling work on the side to try to get through college and all of that. Uh, one of the things I had to have were a certain body of tools. You know, you had to have some things 
and I always wanted more than I had. Anybody know what that feeling's like? You know. Anyway, but you always had to have a certain amount because you couldn't do the job without some of those tools. So I could have all the tools I needed for the job, but that didn't mean the job got done. You know, I had to use the tool in a, in a way to take advantage of what I'd been given. And that same imagery is used here. God is saying, hey, so I've, I've made everything available to you for life and godliness. The toolkit is finished. The, for those of you that are, you know, really into professional stuff, your truck's all laid out. You mean everything you need for the everything you need for the job there, all that tools, all the parts, everything's there. But but you've got to use them. I mean, just driving the truck there isn't going to do it. You know, you got to you got to use what you've been given. That's the imagery, as I say, he's using here. He says, "Listen, I've granted to you everything you need for life and godliness." And you say, well, what does that mean, Lord? Well, good question. And so he tries to answer us. Everything that we need that pertains to life. What does he mean by life? This word life is a translation of the Greek word zoe. Life, the Greek word zoe means life in the sense of fullness. The Greeks used it to contrast living with merely existing. In fact, there are three primary words used in the Greek language uh, that are translated by the English word life. One of those Greek words is the Greek word bios. And you can see how that ended up in our language uh, because that's the preliminary piece to a lot of things like biology and so forth. Bios means physical life. And so sometimes the Bible is using the word bios because in those cases life is talking about being physically alive. It's not the word used here, but that's one of the words that will bring it. When we hear the word life, that comes to our mind. And God says, well, that's not what I mean in this case. Isn't that nice? The Greek language had a little bit more exactness to it on such things. <laughs> and he says there's another word in the Greek language that gets translated by the English word life, and that's forms of the Greek word psyche. And the word psyche in the Greek means personality mindset, thinking, temperament, uh, psyche. So you can see the Greeks were distinguishing between merely physical existence and some of those components that make up what life is about. And so sometimes when it's talking about life, it's talking about that temperament, that personality, that the fact that you're more than just an organism that's alive versus dead. You're, there's something to you. There's a temperament. There's a personality. So do you see those distinctions? But that's not the word used here either. Instead, it's the third word, which is, again, the primary words that are used in Greek. It's the Greek word zoe. Now, here's the biblical truth. No one is alive in this world who doesn't have bios and psyche. In other words, there's no one alive in this world who's simply physically alive. They also have a psyche. But many in this world never discover Zoe. And the Greeks understood that. Part of the quest of the Greek mind was, how can I find Zoe? How can, how can I discover it? People, in fact, ever since, not just from the Greek time, but from the beginning of time, have sought to find Zoe because no one is ultimately happy merely because they're physically alive and merely because they have a temperament or personality and a thinking ability. They're in a ceaseless quest to make sense of it all, to 
find meaning and purpose, to have some sense of wholeness. That's what drives people. Think of the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a dominating theme, says here are the things people do to find zoe, in a sense, to find meaning and purpose. They're all dead ends, and after a while, somebody comes, no matter what they've chosen, if they've not chosen the right thing, which is in relationship with God, they end up coming to the end and saying, this was all ultimately meaningless. (laughs) It didn't result in zoe. I still got bios and psyche, but I couldn't find what I was ceaselessly questing to find. Zoe. Now why? Because people are spiritually dead inside without Zoe. It only makes sense that you'd, you'd sense the empty point. You'd sense the inadequacy. And you'd be doing something desperately, maybe at times. I want to fill the hole. I want to fill the hole. You know, there's something very, very... Augustine uh, put it, he said, our hearts are... Each one of us has a... Our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. You know, there's that restlessness inside driving us to seek after uh, true life. The Bible tells us that men and women lost the ability to find Zoe when they sinned and rebelled against God. That's what the scripture means when it says, all of sin and come short of the glory of God and wages of sin is death. It's not just eventual accountability. It is that. But people are dead now because of that. Spiritually dead. Oh, they've still got bios and psyche. Yeah, yeah, right. But they don't have zoe. The thing that puts it all together. They're alive, they're alive but they don't have it. Think of Ephesians 2.1 where it says, You were dead in your sins and trespasses in which you once walked. Later on, uh, that was 2.1, but in 2.5 it says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. Zoe, form of that. He made us alive in Jesus Christ. You see, God tells us only Christ can give us Zoe. We can try to find it any number of other ways. But any way to get it, ultimately. We may think we got it for a while, but Ecclesiastes always haunts us. Sooner or later we say, no, that's empty. That's, that's not enough. That's not the solution. All is vanity, all is meaningless, as the book of Ecclesiastes puts it. Only in Christ can we find Zoe. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 19, we read these words. He's talking about, in verse 19, he's talking about people rebelling against God. And he says they're storing up a treasure. And and he talks about believers too. Storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Greek word zoe. One of the wonders of Christ and the work that he did on our behalf. Once we turn to him in repentance and faith, we can lay hold of what is truly life. There's no way to get Zoe apart from that. A lot of false promises of how to get it, of course. But God says, there's any way to get a hold of it apart from this. We get a hold of Zoe in Christ. Now, because we are rebels at heart, we will seek any number of possibilities short of doing that. 
And humanity's history is a picture of that, both personal history as well as corporate history. We look at anything short of coming to Christ to try to find what only coming to Christ can give us. Haven't you found that to be true? And that's really the human condition. But in Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1 puts it this way. According to the promise of life that is in Jesus Christ. And in that verse, it is the Greek word zoe. There is no promise of zoe anywhere else. It's only in him. There's places you can get bios, places you can get psyche, but no place to get zoe apart from God, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why in John 10.10, when Jesus was summarizing why he came, he said it this way, I came that they might have life, that they might have it more abundantly. Does it surprise you that the Greek word in John 10.10 is zoe? He didn't come so we'd have bios. He didn't come so we'd have psyche. He came so that we could have zoe. And there is no place to get it apart from him. He gives it. By the way, that's why one of the griefs in my life is I see people suffering and grieving. And I know there's no ultimate answer for them apart from zoe in Christ. And to the degree they're not willing to seek him, they may come up with a short-term way of surviving, but I know it's destined to have Book of Ecclesiastes experience. They're going to come once again at some point. I may have somehow tricked them into living the next few weeks, the next few months, the next few years, thinking they got the answer, but they're still going to come face-to-face with the realization Zoe doesn't come this way, and I'm finding life intolerable apart from Zoe. If one wants to understand a lot what goes on in, in the reality of the, uh, of the emotions and psychology of humanity, there it is. You know, they're, 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 they survive and ultimately can be stable because they're, they, they, they've got a reason and, and they're finding it. But we know only in Christ will we find life. If we have Zoe in him, even when our bios dies, we're still alive. Isn't that amazing? But when people don't have that, that we, have a, we have eternal life. Zoe. By the way, that's why evangelism, the best way I understand evangelism is this. I share with dead people how to find life. And I keep reminding myself all the time, when I have somebody that hasn't turned to Christ, they're dead. Yeah, they got bias, they got psyche, they're real people. I'm not diminishing their personhood. I'm just saying they're dead. They're dead. And it helps me to see them right. It helps to remind me anything I do for somebody dead that's short of giving them life is ultimately futile. I better make sure whatever else I'm trying to do, I'm doing something to give them life. Does that make sense to you? That's what we do, and that's how we minister and care to people. Well, that was the first part. He says, I, you know, we have everything we need for Zoe, life, he pertains to it. And then he says, we have everything we need that pertains to godliness. Okay, well, what's godliness then? Eusebia in the Greek, which means godliness, God-awareness, piety, holiness. It describes a person whose life is lived with God-awareness and God-connectedness. 
Is that important? Uh, I would assume it is, given the way he's describing it here. All right, uh, Life and godliness, they sort of go together. What a tragic... When, if somebody found Zoe in Christ, doesn't build in relationship, and therefore there's no godliness that comes out of this, something's fundamentally flawed here, and contrary to God's great plan. He says, listen, godliness, everything we need to become godly people. You say, well, like godliness, that's sort of a nebulous word, kind of a religious word. You know, is that, is that like dressing like a monk? What, what's, that, what's that all about? You know, what's God saying by all of this? And God knows that's going to go on in our head. You know, what does godliness mean? And it's interesting to me in Jude chapter 15, we find the word asebius, which is the opposite of godliness. It describes it this way in verse 15 of Jude. It says, And it was also about these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Lord, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all of the ungodly, asebius, of all of their deeds of ungodliness that they've committed to such an ungodly way. Then of all of the harsh things that they, the ungodly have spoken against him. And then in verse 18, and he says, and they said to him, in the last time there'll be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. All right, so what does it mean to be ungodly? Because if we know that, then we sort of have a sense of what it means to be godly. What are we supposed to be going after? Well, what it means to be ungodly is somebody who speaks of God in scoffing manner, who speaks of God in harsh manner, because both of those terms we see fleshed out in the book of Jude to describe Asebius. To be ungodly has a lot to do with the way we speak, which also reflects what we think. So if somebody's speaking about God in sort of a scoffing way, or a harsh way, cursing way, which is also what that word means, that means, that's what it means to be ungodly. So, co- correspondingly, what it means to be godly, to have God, godliness, is to get to the point where what I think about God and what I speak about God and say about God is different. <laughs> it, it reflects a, an awareness and a reverence and, and, a, and a joy in Him. Uh, also, he says, the ungodly follow their own ungodly passions. To be an ungodly person is a person who is driven by their own wants. He's not talking, by the way, there about people choosing the most immoral, gross lifestyle they can follow. He is describing the individual that lives for themselves, who does what they want to do. Might be a very moral thing that they're choosing to do. It doesn't change the reality of it. It's still an ungodly passion because it's not done for the Lord. It's not done as a product of wanting to get to know him or fulfill his purpose and plan. He says, everything you need to become a godly person, and by the way, as a new creation, that's what the deepest love of you wants to be. That's Romans 7 sort of thing. Inside, God's changed me. I see a war going on in my members. Keep trying to keep that from happening, but he's changed me inside. He says, this is the difference. Are, are you irreverent? Are you growing? In everything you need to be what the deepest part of you wants to be, God's given you. He's not holding it back. He's given you what you need for that. In Christ, he gives us Zoe. And then he calls for us to combine Zoe in practice with a commitment to godly living, to be getting to know him better and to be reflecting, to grow and mature. He's done everything he needs to do to help us with that. 
And he, he goes on, he says, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. This life and godliness that he's talking about, that he's given us all we need to achieve, is found through a deepening personal relationship with him and the enabling power that he has granted us in the Holy Spirit. It's discovered, first of all, through our knowledge of him, and it's the Greek word epinosis we already talked about from back in verse 2. Deepening relationship. It's possible to be redeemed and not deepening in relationship with the God who's really there. And God is saying to us here, you can't have life and godliness apart from deepening in relationship. They they go together. You can't really have it unless you're growing. That's why the great challenges to discipleship are so numerous in the scriptures. You've got to be deepening to have these things. In fact, he says the spiritual provision, the power and the spiritual provision I have for you for life and godliness is tied to knowing. You've got to get knowing. Not salvation. Of course, that's assumed. But he's not talking about salvation here. He's talking to the saved about relationship. He says it's found that way. You've got to grow. You've got to grow. You're not going to get these things that are necessary for life and godliness because... You go through religious rituals. You're not going to go through it because you went through sacraments. And you're not going to go and achieve these things because you grit your teeth and try to become very self-disciplined people. No. You fundamentally begin to discover it only to the degree that you've said, I want to get to know him. Not know about him, although you've got to know about him to get to know him better. But I want to get to know him. I want to deepen in relationship with him. through relationship. And then he says, his divine power has granted these things to us. It's discovered by deepening relationship, and it's discovered by divine power, dunamis in the Greek, meaning power, strength. Some say, oh, it sounds like dynamite. Well, it is, but if you think of it as dynamite, that's not the way to think about that word. We coined that word into English, but it doesn't mean like an explosion type of stuff. It's talking about power, strength, might. God says, listen, there's not going to be any life and godliness here apart from my power. It isn't your power as a redeemed, equal standing person before the Lord. It's not your power that's going to do this. It's my power that's going to do it. I will give you that power and that enablement. You cannot grow. You cannot deepen in godliness. You cannot do these things based on your own strength. You're going to look within, and you're going to find, I'm as dismally weak as I was before I was redeemed. There seems to be this big breakdown between the new heart I have and winning the war against the members of my body, which are tempting me and trying to get me to act a certain way. And God says, I know that. I know that. It wasn't my plan to take you out of the fallen body yet. I changed you at the core. And the only way the core is going to influence the crust is in cooperation with me. I've indwelt you with the third person of the Trinity. Remember how Acts 1.8 put it? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then you'll be able to be my witnesses here and everywhere. 
Ephesians 3 puts it this way, starting in verse 16. According to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all of the saints what's the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. And that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Rooted, strengthened through him. And so he says, okay, here's the process. Rooted and strengthened through him. The only way the transformed core ultimately wins the battle with the crust and changes the crust is by a determination to want to grow, deepen in relationship, and drawing upon the Holy Spirit. I have determined there's no other avenue to get there. We must learn to draw upon the Holy Spirit. You say, what do you mean, learn? Well, you spent your life being self-reliant. That inclination of life doesn't go away because you became redeemed. Everything in you pushes you to self-reliance. The believer has to learn what it means to not be self-reliant, but Christ-reliant. Spirit-reliant. It just doesn't come naturally. We have to learn. I was thinking of Philippians 4 in that regard. In verse 12, 13, it says, I've learned the secret. Paul's speaking about He says, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and want. I'd eat all that life brings. I've learned the secret about this. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Not I can do all things. But what he would have learned about that is, well, I stepped out to do the right thing and, well, battle lost. I screwed up. You know, that's what life would teach you. But he says, I've learned that no matter what life circumstances are, I can face those things properly, God-honoringly, and successfully to the degree that I'm resting in the one who strengthens me, not me. You say, well, isn't my good intention enough? Isn't God going to honor the fact that I want to do what's right to him? The answer is no. Not that God is unhappy that you have the desire to do that, but God's already said that won't work. You say, well, in my foolishness, Lord, make it work. God doesn't work that way. He works according to his word. He's not going to make it possible for you to do what you can't do. He's going to make it possible for you to learn what it means to rely on power beyond yourself. And that power is the power of the Holy Spirit. And he does it all for his own glory and excellence. It's not because I deserve so much or you deserve so much. He's not doing all of this because, well, Gary's a nice guy. you know. Of course, we know he's not in the flesh. But that's not why God does it. He says, for my glory and my excellence. And by the way, that means if you're not growing... You are dishonoring the God who is really there. You're doing the opposite of demonstrating his glory and his excellence to the world around you. You are demonstrating a false God to the world around you. And you ought to think of the scriptures that way, because they're pretty sobering when you realize, oh, well, wait a second, what's the alternative? I don't do this. What message am I communicating? And my response is it's the message, sadly, many who claim to be believers are communicating. 
to the world around them. We want to communicate the right thing, don't we? Uh, we want to show something about the honor and excellence of the Lord. Now, one other note about this. Uh, uh, yeah, I know we haven't gotten to verse 4, but anyway, any rate, one other note about this. The passage makes it very plain that God provides everything we need. Not everything we want. Please understand that. I hear all kinds of people name it and claim it. You know, we're going to get God to... Who do you think you are? God didn't say he was going to do something. I don't care how much you claim it. He's just looking at you and saying, Oh, who do you think you are? I'm God. Who are you? Oh, I'm a frail, messed up guy. Well, yeah. Uh, how about trusting me, not you? You know, uh, Gives us everything we need, not everything we want. And here's the question you have to ask yourself. What is it I really need for life and godliness? What do I need, Lord, to move forward on this stuff? Because you said you provided that. What do I need? Now, in honesty, in answer to that kind of question, sometimes we'll come before the Lord and say, well, you know, I think what I really need right now to really be pleasing you with my life is good health, you know. Uh, and if it, maybe a little wealth, you know, that certainly make life a little more comfortable for us. Not, not facing some of the, the looming debt that <laughs> potentially see out there. Or for us as a church, say, you know, could you just miraculously solve our roof problem? You know, anyway, so we come before God with different things. Or, you know, I can serve you this way if you give me a good marriage. You know, give me a marriage with some stresses. Well, <laughs> you know, how do you expect me to grow? And, and, or, I think I could do these things if people respected me. But people don't really respect me, Lord. And this makes it tough. I don't think I can carry this stuff out. Or maybe people say, I think I could do this stuff, but what I really need to do what you called me to do, Lord, is freedom from suffering. You know, that, you'd, I'd do so much better a job for you, Lord, if, if, if that's what you would give me. Or, how about no temptations? That, that's a good one, Lord. I, I think I could really show much better performance if I was never tempted to do anything wrong. Of course, even that's a self-deception. We, we're creative in coming up with ways to do wrong, even when we're not tempted from outside. We get tempted on the inside. But anyway, so people say that. Or, I think I could do all these things, Lord, if you gave me the perfect church. I'm still looking around. I haven't found it yet. But boy, once I find it, you'll, you'll be amazed by the disciple I become. Well, <laughs> brothers and sisters, you may want certain things. But God knows what's necessary. And his promise is a universal one here. He says, I've given you everything necessary. I've already done that. It's all there. So here's the question I pose to you out of those verses. Is there something at the hidden secret of your own heart you're demanding that God do, and because you haven't seen it, you're using that as an excuse not to grow, not to be who he's called you to be? Now, nobody can answer that but yourself. But that's the kind of question you're supposed to ask yourself. You know, what am I demanding of God? And he's not living up to his side of the bargain because he didn't do this yet. And so, you know, my lack of growing is understandable and even proper because he dropped on his part of the bargain, you know. Or how have I been justifying my spiritual complacency before God? What makes me feel before God, i got every good reason to be this way. Uh, those are the questions that you should not be able to get past verse 3 
without having them troubling you. Lord, do you mean these things that you say, or is this just sort of glib, empty religious words? And if you mean them, golly, that, that, has, some, that has some implications for my life. Now, next time, Lord willing, he's got more to say. We haven't gotten to verse 4, I understand. But he's also saying, by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises, that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. Life and godliness is also going to require God's precious and great promises. You see, deepening in relationship Drawing on the indwelling Holy Spirit's strength has to be combined with being transformed by the Word of God. All three pieces are needed. Any of those pieces missing isn't going to happen. And so he turns our attention to this. And the only place, by the way, we find the precious and very great promises of God here. Now, some people will try to tell you, here's God's promise to you. And you say, well, where'd you get that? Well, I, I got it in a vision. Or, you know, Spirit confirmed it to me. And my response to all of that is, ah, get out of me. I, God doesn't speak that way. Uh, show me in a word where he promises it. And then we'll, we'll, we'll grasp it then. But uh, I was thinking of, uh, of that classic Christmas story, Dickens thing, you know, you know, it's more of gravy than the grave of you, you know, you, that, that that realization. Wait a second, what you may feel that could come from anything, and you expect me to believe that God's chosen that very subjective, variable thing to actually give you promises? Wake up and smell the roses. That's not the way God's working. Praise God, He's not doing that for anybody. He says, "No, I got a much more solid foundation for you." I've superintended the words that I breathed out, getting them down, making them available to you. Study those. Trust those, those promises. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for a chance to be together in this day, to be together as brothers and sisters, family gathering, to encourage each other, but primarily to worship you and praise you. Be with us in this day and in this week ahead. Help us in this quest to operationalize life and godliness, that we might demonstrate what you wish us to demonstrate in the midst of this fallen world in which you've left us. We'll give you praise as you do that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.